Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to the Financial Times World Weekly Podcast. I'm Gideon Rachman. In this week's edition, political change in Brazil and Argentina, the midterm elections in the United States, and Europe's tortuous negotiations over debt and deficit. We start with Latin America. This weekend, Brazil has the second round of its presidential election, with Dilma Rousseff, the protégé of the current president, Luis Inácio da Silva, still in the lead. But the election's much closer than expected, with José Serra, the rival candidate, also in with a good chance. Meanwhile, in neighbouring Argentina, politics have been thrown into turmoil by the death of Nestor Kirchner, the former president, and the husband of the current president, Cristina Fernández Kirchner. With me to explain all this is John Paul Rathburn, the FT's Latin America editor. JP, let's start with Brazil. How close is the election? It had looked at one point to be very close when Dilma lost the first... Well, she didn't lose. She didn't win outright in the first round. And at one point, it looked like a technical heat in the polls. But since then, Dilma's really pulled away. She's got a 10 to 15 point lead, according to some polls. So it's very much hers. And unless Sarah really pulls something out of a hat on on the last presidential debate on this Friday evening, it looks as though it's Dilma Rousseff's. What are the main arguments between the two candidates? Because in some ways they seem quite similar, both quite technocratic, although Dilma has the thing of being the heir to to Lula, or the chosen heir. That's exactly what sets them apart. Lula has sprinkled his magic over Dilma. Uh, She's got his eight years of incredible prosperity, not all of which, of course, is due to Lula. In fact, was due to the previous administration. And Sarah, by contrast, he's governor of Sao Paulo State. He comes across as a city slicker to a lot of Brazilians. And both, though, are, in terms of policy, very similar, both rather tetchy, testy technocrats with little popular appeal. So what can we expect when when Dilma Rousseff becomes president, if that is indeed what happens? It looks like more of the same. There are certain important issues that that need addressing that haven't been in the electoral race, partly because they're the kind of things that that are very difficult for politicians to talk about, such as spending cuts. The reals that the currency's appreciating wildly, and one reason for that is because interest rates are so high in the domestic economy. And one reason they're so high in the domestic economy is because government spending has been galloping away in the lead-up to this election. But that saying we're going to cut spending isn't the kind of message that politicians usually talk about just before an election. Meanwhile, in uh, next door in Argentina, uh, we've had the, the death of Nestor Kirchner, very unexpected. I use the word turmoil for Argentinian politics. Is that overstated or is this a really big shock? He was the centre of the gyroscope, if you like, in Argentine politics, although his wife was president and their double act was sometimes compared to Juan and Evita Perón. He was the person to which Cristina Fernández deferred to. Uh, And if you want to sort of draw a parallel between Brazil and Argentina, if Kirchner, who was called the boss in Argentina, when he goes and when Lula goes in Brazil and he is also kind of the boss 
I think, in Brazil less dramatically so, but you're going to see uh, a sort of emptiness in the centre of gra- political gravity in Argentina and perhaps less so in Brazil. Is Argentina able to cope, though, with this, with this loss of a central political figure? Constitutionally, Argentina doesn't have a problem because he was only the president's wife, the first gentleman of Argentina, in fact, the first gentleman of Argentina that there's ever been. What it does change is that they, they ran a very tight political circle. Uh, they, they, they very much conferred amongst themselves. They didn't delegate. So in the sense that uh, Christina doesn't have anyone to talk to anymore, um, she's a very adept and intelligent politician in her own right. But it does uh, skew the balance, and it also opens up all sorts of possibilities for the presidential election in 2011, when Nestor Kirshner was thought that he could come back. Christina can run again. The question is, will she? And does she have the sort of administrative and managerial capability to do so now that her husband is no longer around? John Paul Rathbone, thank you very much indeed. Meanwhile, in North America, there are also elections. Next Tuesday, we see the American midterms. The Democrats are expected to get a bit of a drubbing, reflecting a backlash against President Obama. But how bad will it be? With me is Peter Barber, our London-based US news editor. Peter, how bad do you think it's going to be for the Democrats? Well, most of the polls are suggesting that the GOP will sweep the House. Um, the GOP being the Republican The Republican Party. The Senate, it's likely that the Democrats will retain control by the Senate by a whisker. Um, one of the most closely watched of the polling of the political punditry sites in the US is the, the Cook Political Report. And today they're predicting that the uh, Republicans will gain nine seats in the Senate, which is one short of a majority. Well, between six and nine seats. And in the House, as many as 60 seats. They need 39 to gain a majority there. So they should comfortably win a majority in the House, but the Democrats should retain the Senate. So much of this is to do with expectations. I mean, how wounded will President Obama be if it's more or less as, as you describe, if the Republicans get a pretty decent majority in the House of Representatives, but the Democrats cling on in the Senate. Will he be able to shrug it off or will he really be in trouble? He'll certainly have to completely change direction. We're talking about a recipe for gridlock, at least in the the House of Representatives here. Most of the Democrats who are likely to lose their jobs in the House are moderate Democrats sitting in traditionally Republican seats, whereas the new wave of Republican congressmen will be ideologically very right-wing, they're Tea Party-backed. This is potentially a real polarisation. Obama promised bipartisanship in his first term. That hasn't come to pass. That possibility doesn't exist anymore. So he's going to have to reach across the aisle. He's going to have to sort of make a pact with the likely House Speaker under Republican-controlled House, which will be John Boehner. If anything's going to be done in the next two years, they're going to have to make agreements. And yet the the situation you described, the new Republican wave... It's pretty hard line. I mean, you you mentioned the Tea Party movement, which has been the story that's fascinated people in the US and and outside. When we talk about a swing to the Republicans, are we talking about a swing to the Tea Party, which is kind of radically anti-government, or is it to kind of mix with some more traditional Republicans, the Tea Party and so on? And where does that leave the possibility of the kind of cooperation you talked about? Well, I mean, there's two stories you get from the polls. One is the macro picture, which is a pretty much a repudiation of the Obama agenda. But you look at the individual races, and some of them are very, very tight. Um, I mean, one of the themes of this election is that all politics is local. Very strong local candidates can go against the national tide. So it's probably likely that you'll get some hardline ideological Tea Party candidates in Congress, but you'll also get some more moderate Republican figures and Democrats. So I don't think it's not likely to be a clean sweep, but some Tea Party figures are 
look likely to win and they're going to, to an extent, set the agenda because they are actually pushing the Republican Party to the right as well. So finally, I mean, if we, if we look ahead to Tuesday night, if uh, people are staying up to watch the election, as I'm sure you will be, in the line of work if, as well as pleasure, which races do you think we should be looking out for? Which, which are the most interesting ones? Well, I suppose probably the most emblematic race of this whole contest is Nevada, where Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, looks likely to lose against a hardline Tea Party figure who's come from nowhere, at least in national politics, Sharon Angle. I saw her campaign in Las Vegas only about three weeks ago. Yeah, and she's ahead, isn't she? She's ahead. According to the polls today, she's four points ahead. It's very close, and it could go either way, but it will tell you that something significant has happened if Harry Reid loses his position. In the House, perhaps the one to look for is Jerry Connolly's seat, just across the Potomac from the Capitol building. If he loses, then... He is a Republican or a Democrat? He's a Democrat. But Fairfax County, this area, should be solid Democrat. It's uh, benefited from government largesse. It's got very high income, a very high percentage of government employees. Its economy is not doing too badly compared to some other areas, but he's at risk here. So if he loses, this is perhaps a a sign of a, a fairly significant movement in the House. Peter Barber, thank you very much. And finally to the European Union, where most EU countries have now agreed on the need to bring profligate member states into line to avoid a recurrence of the kind of crisis that nearly derailed the single currency, the euro, earlier this year, when member states had to bail out the Greek economy. However, a battle's broken out over the details how precisely to tackle this problem. The EU's Commissioner for Economic Affairs, Olli Wren, has drawn up tough-sounding new rules, but he's having difficulty persuading the key national governments to go along with his proposals. Fiona Simon spoke to Peter Spiegel, the FT's Brussels bureau chief, and asked him how Mr Wren's proposals were going down. Well, the rules as they were written up by Olli Wren, the commissioner, were actually quite strict. I mean, there was a whole set of fines and penalties that would be imposed on countries that have debt limits that go above EU norms, which is about 60% of GDP. These fines would have been kicked in almost automatically. Basically, if the European Commission determined that you had not been bringing down your debt levels by about 5% per year, these fines would be be imposed rather quickly. The problem is what's happened since Wren made the proposals is the member states have come in, particularly the French and the Germans, and said, we don't like this automatic stuff. We would like the politicians to have a judgment over whether these fines are imposed or not. And that has caused a huge, huge controversy here in Brussels because originally the Germans in particular had backed the Ren proposals. Then they turned around and cut a deal with the French over this. Um, that has brought a lot of these MEPs into the debate. They also have sided with Ali Ren. They also believe that these fines should be automatic, kept out of the hands of the politicians. So we're seeing a real sort of institutional and international fight going on over just how tough these rules should be. As Europe's biggest economy and the chief financer of the Greek bailout, it might have been expected that Germany would back these rules. What, what's prompted Angela Merkel's apparent change of heart? Well, this is the thing that has everyone sort of scratching their head right now. Uh, she has been, and Germany has been, the toughest on these fines from the beginning. Her finance minister sent a letter around to all member states detailing their position on this point, which was very tough, and they wanted these fines to be automatic. Um, but a new topic has popped up in recent days. The, the German, are, Germans are very concerned that portions of this agreement, these new rules, will be ruled as unconstitutional by the German constitutional court. And, they, and Merkel apparently has decided that getting these measures into the treaty is more important than the rules themselves. So 
what she has been pushing for is reopening all the European treaties, which, frankly, almost every European diplomat I have talked to is dreading. And in exchange, she has agreed to soften some of her stances. And this is sort of the core of the deal with the French. The French will agree with, with Merkel's position on reopening the treaties as long as Merkel goes along with softening some of these rules. And it's been hugely controversial. She's come her intense criticism in Germany on this, even within her own coalition. Um, and there are a lot of smaller countries here in Brussels who are really furious with the Germans. They thought they had the Germans on their side, and they feel undercut by Merkel uh, for cutting this deal with the French. Is it clear exactly what France and Germany are proposing? Well, they've come out with a statement that you can read anywhere on the Internet that basically has the principles they want to include in the treaty and also the watering down of the rules as they described it. So they actually are very detailed. The question is whether they're going to be able to get any of this, uh, particularly some of the treaty changes. I think a lot of the country will be willing to do very narrow treaty changes focused on this uh, new bailout system for countries like Greece, if this ever happened in the future, which require maybe a sentence or two to be added to the treaties. But some of the proposals the Germans and the French have, have, have listed in this statement are much broader, things like countries that fail to reduce their debt will have their voting rights stripped from the EU. Something like that is much bigger, much more controversial, and would not have support from, from a wide range of countries. Given that it took um, eight years to negotiate and ratify the Lisbon Treaty, which came into force last December, what's to prevent this latest proposal from getting bogged down for years like the last treaty? Well, that's the fear. And, and there are countries like Britain, which uh, has a coalition government where the, the Liberal Democrats, the junior coalition members, are, are ardently pro-Europe, and the Tories, the, the, the senior members, have factions that are, that are vehemently anti-Europe, Politically, for them to reopen the treaties would be a disaster. The Irish, for any treaty change, require a referendum. They're in the middle of a horrible and wrenching budget negotiation. You know, no one politically wants these things. And as you said, this could go stretch on for years and cause political problems for years. One of the solutions I've heard mooted, which seems to be the way things are going, is that, again, if it could be very narrowly focused on a few sentences that need to be added to the treaty, that really wouldn't shift any new responsibilities to EU. There are ways to have expedited processes that nation states just quickly sign off on these things. The wording is changed, and poof, we're done. If the Germans are happy to keep it that narrow, then we could see this relatively quickly done. Um, the problem is if they insist on a broader list of changes that are much more uh, shifting more powers to Brussels, we're likely to see this stretch on for months, if not years. What's your view of the chances of the Franco-German plan getting passed? My current view is, having talked to, gosh, probably a dozen diplomats from a dozen different countries, uh, is that it has very little chance of getting through. There is real opposition from the European Commission. With that said, as one diplomat pointed out to me, frequently there'll be a lot of complaining behind closed doors, but when they actually get into the session and have to face Merkel and Sarkozy face-to-face, some of that bravado disappears. My sense is that there is enough opposition to this at this point that it is unlikely to go through unless it is very, very narrowly focused on these few sentences that should be changed. And finally, uh, what of Oli Rehn's proposals? What's their future? Oli Rehn said basically, look, my proposals are legislative proposals. They have to go to the parliament. They have to go to the council of ministers. And both of them get to weigh in on this. The implication being that he is going to take his case to the other legislative branches of the EU to get these toughened up again. And, you know, if he has his way, even the Franco-German deal, as it's negotiated over, the, over this weekend, may not live to see another day if he's able to get them changed uh, in other legislative branches of the EU. Peter Spiegel in Brussels.
And that's it for this World Weekly. Uh, all that remains is to thank uh, my colleagues in the studio here, Peter Barber and John Paul Rathbone, and to thank LJ Filatrani, who produced the programme. Goodbye for now. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.